to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Let me say a few words then by way of introduction to our study. First of all, about when Isaiah prophesied. We can date him fairly confidently and precisely in the 8th century B.C., because in chapter 1, at the very first verse, he tells us exactly when he ministered. You notice, if chapter 6 describes the beginning of his ministry as at the end of the reign of King Uzziah, you remember he says in chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, then that was probably around the year 740 or 739 B.C., Um, Hezekiah, the last king that he mentions in chapter 1, verse 1, notice these four kings, they're in chronological order, Isaiah, Jotham, Isaiah, sorry, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, Hezekiah ascended the throne in 716 B.C. and died in 686 B.C. So, Isaiah ministered Uh, within the reign of these four kings, if you count it up, for a minimum period of 25 years and for a possible period of 55. Um, So it may well be that Isaiah ministered for almost half a century uh, in that period between the end of Isaiah's reign and uh, towards the end of Hezekiah's reign. There is a tradition that uh, Isaiah lived into the reign of Hezekiah's successor, Manasseh, who was a cruel and wicked king and was murdered by him. But we can't substantiate that. That's tradition rather than uh, history. Around this same time then that Isaiah was uh, prophesying, Rome, the city of Rome, was founded and the city of Athens also was probably uh, beginning to arise at this period. You can find the historical background of Isaiah, if you want to read it, in 2 Kings chapters 15 to 20 or so, and in 2 Chronicles from chapter 26 to around chapter 32. You'll find that, for example, 2 Kings 19 and Isaiah chapter 37 are identical. Uh, There is an almost verbal identity in these two chapters, 2 Kings 19 and Isaiah 37. For something like 200 years, the kingdom of Judah had been ruled by descendants of King David, David's reign was the great heyday of Israel when they reached uh, their climax uh, in their prosperity and so on. And these descendants of David were both evil and good men. Of the four kings who are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1, Ahaz is described in 2 Kings 16.2, as one who did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. But the other three are numbered as amongst the eight good kings of Judah. Even Uzziah 
who died in some disgrace. Do you remember that he died afflicted with leprosy? Because, now here's a very significant thing that we are told in 2 Kings about Isaiah, that he was marvelously helped until he became strong. He was marvelously helped until he became strong. And Isaiah's latter days were spent in great misery, and under it appears the chastisement of God, because he had become the kind of man who began to trust in himself and was confident in his own self-will and human wisdom and transgressed the will of God. Isaiah's long reign of 52 years was a time of great prosperity domestically for Judah and also a time of international strength when Judah amongst the nations was a strong nation. Uh, the period of Isaiah's ministry, that is uh, the time when Isaiah's ministry was beginning, overlaps with the period of the ministry in the northern kingdom of Israel uh, of Jeroboam II, when the northern kingdom was also very prosperous. You will remember, do you, that about the 10th century BC, the two parts of God's people, the nation, were divided into ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom of the two tribes was called Judah. Now, the trouble with these days of prosperity, and they were days of substantial national prosperity, is that in times of prosperity, nations tend to forget God. Even though it has been obvious in their history that God has prospered them and blessed them and provided rulers for them and delivered them from their enemies, when prosperity comes, you can almost always forecast that they are going to be tempted to forget God. It's not just true of nations. It's true of individuals. It's true of us. And it's so easy in days of austerity and difficulty and adversity to be stimulated to fly to God and in days of prosperity to drift from Him. Now in both kingdoms, the north called Israel and the south called Judah, there was a total disregard of Moses' warning which he had given in Deuteronomy 6.12. Then watch yourself. He is speaking about days of prosperity. Then watch yourself lest you forget the Lord. Now that's a text to have inscribed over your home and over your heart. Deuteronomy 6.12. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord. Spiritual decline then, both in Israel in the north and Judah in the south, 
led to apostasy in both kingdoms. So you find in the very first chapter of Isaiah that Isaiah is railing upon the people of Judah for their idol worship. They have departed from God and they are worshiping idols. Now, uh, the spiritual condition of Israel in the north was particularly grave, and God responded to it by sending prophets to them. Amos and Hosea went to the northern kingdom of Israel, and we have studied the minor prophets, as we call them, they're only minor in length. And we have discovered that Amos and Hosea spoke with enormous clarity and directness and faithfulness to that situation. Hosea indeed uh, brings a parable in his own life before the people. What has happened to them is that they have deserted God and given their heart to other gods. And in his own life, Hosea has this extraordinary heartache that he is commanded to marry Gomer, a prostitute, and see her selling herself to other husbands. And here, Israel is guilty of this very sin. So God sent these prophets, but they paid no heed. And the ten tribes of the northern kingdom were attacked by Assyria from the northeast and carried off into ignominy. And largely the northern kingdom disappears. God then sent Isaiah and Micah, who is a contemporary almost of Isaiah, to Judah. And he was warning them, of course, that the same fate would overtake Judah as had overtaken Israel. And the message that God gave Isaiah, therefore, to Judah was one that was profoundly unpopular. Chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah do not not make easy or comfortable reading. The main theme, in fact, of chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah is the theme of judgment. Chapters 40 to 66 have their main theme as the salvation that God purposes to bring to his people ultimately. But the theme of the first half of the chapter of the book is the theme of judgment. That's oversimplifying it, but by and large, that's how it's divided. If you want to remember the number of chapters in Isaiah, you will know that many people have pointed out that it is a microcosm of the whole Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. There are 66 chapters in the whole Bible. There are 39 chapters in the first half of Isaiah. There are 39 books in the whole of the Old Testament. And if you see it divided that way, you can see that Isaiah is, in a sense, a pattern for the whole of Scripture. Now, that leads me to say something about the structure of Isaiah and its unity, which may not be something that uh, some of you would have thought about at all, 
but it may be that for some of us that's an important thing. Isaiah doesn't have a very obvious structure. That's almost what you would expect, of course, since it's a compilation of the prophet's messages to Judah. But the most obvious structural division in Isaiah is between the first 39 chapters and chapters 40 to 66, the remaining 27. Now, chapters 1 to 39 appear almost to be like a separate book. Its message is judgment rather than salvation. Its tone and feeling appear to be different from the second half of the book. And anybody reading through Isaiah as a a first-time student of the book would immediately recognize that there is a difference when you come to the end of chapter 39 and begin to read at chapter 40. So last century, there was a widely held view publicized and uh, explored a great deal by 19th century scholars that uh, Isaiah, the 8th century prophet, had written chapters 1 to 39 and that chapters 40 to 66 were written probably by another unknown prophet around the 6th century because it spoke about the exile of the people of God. Now you will know if you know your history of Israel that the exile to Babylon took place in the 6th century. So they conclude, you can see how their minds were working. Uh, Here is Isaiah talking about the exile in the 6th century It can't have been Isaiah because he lived in the 8th century. How could anybody 200 years before be talking about something that happened 200 years afterwards? The thing's impossible anyway. So this must be another Isaiah. Then somebody else said, ah, yes, but even in that particular section, the chapters beginning at chapter 56 are even different from the ones from 40 to 55, and we think there's a third Isaiah somewhere. So far as I'm aware of Old Testament scholarship, the last total of Isaiah's was three. The one who wrote 1 to 39, the one who wrote 40 to 55, and the one who wrote 56 to 66. Uh, Although there's some doubt about that, what I must tell you is that the general tendency of recent Old Testament scholarship uh, has been to say that there is far, 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 far more to be said for the unity of Isaiah, that is that it was written uh, by one prophet, namely the 8th century prophet Isaiah, than the scholars of the last century allowed for. If you want to read about that, and you're specially interested in the subject, there's a book by a man called Oswald Allis, A-L-L-I-S, called The Unity of Isaiah. Sinclair will be delighted to lend it to you if you're looking for that kind of... uh, The reason he needs to lend it to you is I lent it to somebody else and they've never given it back to me. So uh, if there is a conscience being pricked somewhere this evening, let conscience have its work. Uh, Let me just say a word to you about this question of the unity of Isaiah. There are a number of factors that 
seem to me of importance for us to have in our minds, especially if you are reading on the subject and you come across some of these issues. Let me say to you that there are some external factors, first of all, that speak loudly about the unity of Isaiah. First, much of the objection to Isaiah's authorship of the second half of the book, that is 40 to 66, was based on the idea that it was impossible that Isaiah could have foreseen and addressed himself to the people of God taken away captive and then in God's mercy being brought back uh, from Babylon. Now, that really is based on the presupposition that no prophet can see into the future and that God cannot supernaturally acquaint him with what is going to happen in the future of the people of Judah. And that, of course, is something which is a theological presupposition about what God may and may not do and is not really, therefore, based on basic scholarship. Secondly, the historical form in which Isaiah has appeared down the centuries from earliest Hebrew tradition is as a unity of 66 chapters. Many of you will know about, if you have not read much on, the Dead Sea Scrolls which were discovered at Qumran. Uh, now, the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah is one of the most famous and certainly was one of the most complete. It's dated probably in the second century BC, that is before Christ, and is a unified book. I've seen photographs of it, never actually seen the thing itself, but I've seen photographs of it, and where chapter 39 ends and chapter 40 begins is in the same part of the book and is a unity, not a divided uh, half. Thirdly, it seems to me a very important issue, is the New Testament testimony. Writers in the New Testament, you may know, quote from all parts of the prophecy of Isaiah and attribute what they quote to Isaiah. Above all, it's important for us to recognize our Lord Jesus Christ himself quotes, do you remember, at the beginning of his ministry from Isaiah chapter 61, when he is in the temple, in the synagogue rather, in Luke chapter 4, and when he quotes from Isaiah 61, he names the prophet who wrote this as Isaiah. Now that's a very important thing. Uh, for Christian people. But there are other internal matters, and this is where I want to finish the question of introduction. Uh, there are other internal matters that would persuade us of the unity of Isaiah. First, words and phrases are used throughout all parts of Isaiah and seldom elsewhere in the Old Testament which would suggest that there is a unity of style in the book. Now, it was often said that the style of Isaiah 40 to 66 was different from 1 to 39. 
But in fact, for instance, you get the phrase, the name used of God, the Holy One of Israel. Now that phrase is used around 25 times in the prophecy of Isaiah, and I think about six times everywhere else in the Old Testament. Now the interesting thing is that it's used 12 times in the first half of Isaiah and 13 times in the second half of Isaiah. And the clear evidence one would draw from that is that there is a unity of expression in that very important phrase throughout the whole of Isaiah in both its parts. There are other expressions of which the same may be said. But possibly one of the main issues that has never been answered is this. If, in fact, some other prophet wrote the second half of Isaiah, or two of them, the issue really is how did this amazing prophet, who, for example, would have written Isaiah 53, how did he contrive to remain totally anonymous throughout the whole of history from the 8th century onwards and quite unheard of? That's an important question which we need to ask. Now for the remainder of our time this evening, I want us to have a kind of a skeletal look at uh, chapter 1, which is often said to introduce the whole of the book. It doesn't introduce Isaiah to us. Isaiah is introduced in chapter 6 when we read about his call, you will remember. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord and he tells us how God came and called him. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah uh, pronounces these immortal words, Here am I, send me. Now, uh, that's probably one of the better-known passages of Isaiah for us. But this first chapter introduces the book rather than uh, introducing us to Isaiah himself. Verse 1 tells us something about his time and the reigns of the kings uh, under whose reign he ministered. But you will notice that the chapter itself introduces us to the theme of judgment that goes right through the first half of the book. Here is God addressing himself to Judah. And in chapter 1 you get this courtroom scene. And it is rather like the scene of a courtroom. Do you notice how God is speaking and he calls witnesses in verse 2 at the beginning. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. In other words, it is heaven and earth that God is calling as witnesses. For the Lord has spoken, and here is God acting, as it were, as prosecutor and judge in this uh, courtroom which the universe is, as God calls heaven and earth to witness. Now you notice there are three charges. God, who is the judge, is bringing against Judah, who stands in the dock before God. The first charge is the charge of iniquity in the nation, verses 2 to 9. The second charge is the charge of insincerity in the temple, verses 10 
to 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Verse 10. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. Verse 11 onwards, he is describing the charge of insincerity in the temple. Third charge is injustice in the city. Verse 21, see how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross and so on. And God is charging these three areas in the nation iniquity of a particular kind, we'll notice in a moment. In the temple, insincerity. It is not, you see, that this people are irreligious. It is not that they do not practice a religion. It is that their religion is such that God says in colloquial language, I am fed up with your worship. I have had enough, says God. And thirdly, in the city, he exposes the third evidence of apostasy, which is injustice. Now, in each case... God speaks a word of judgment. And it's very significant, I think, when you see how this uh, works out in the chapter. First, to the charge of iniquity in the nation, his word of judgment is, I have already judged this. One of the problems in the nation of Judah is that they have not recognized the hand of God in their national life in judgment already. And so God speaks to them. Verse 5, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness in you. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Now, God is saying to them, in other words, I have judged this iniquity, but you haven't been able to see it, and in a sense, you're coming back for more. Do you see the point of this? Why should you be beaten anymore? Now, in the second case, in the realm of the temple and their insincerity, he comes and says, now let us now deal with this in the present. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And God is speaking to them into the present, his terms of grace and salvation and cleansing and renewal. And they are, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken of... What is it that God is demanding in the present? It is repentance. Now, in the third case, injustice in the city, what God says here is, I will settle this in the future. 
Verse 24, Therefore the Lord, the Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in days of old. Zion will be redeemed with justice, or penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who who forsake the Lord will perish, you will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted, and so on. God says, this in the future I will judge. Now, uh, let's look a little at uh, the first of these charges. There is a sense in which, do you notice, this charge in the first place, in the first instance, the charge that God brings of iniquity in the nation is a charge of juvenile delinquency. Do you notice how he puts it? The nation in the dark is the children of the judge. Look at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Now that's an extraordinary picture if you think of it. Here is God the judge of all the earth and the judge of the nations, and he has his accused, as it were, in the dark. And as he comes to sit up on the bench and looks down to see who they are, he recognizes and spells out and declares, they are my own children. I brought them up. And in that there is the whole realm of all the anguish and sacrifice and pain and self-giving involved in all that God has done to them. Elsewhere in Isaiah in chapter 5, God speaks of Israel as being his vineyard and says, What more could I do than I have done in my vineyard? And yet it's producing sour grapes. Now here he is saying, This is my people, these are my children, and they have rebelled against me. Notice how he puts it in verse 3. He says they are actually worse than dumb animals, because the ox knows his master. The ox recognizes his master and knows his voice and obeys him. The donkey, his owner's manger, that is, the donkey will recognize where he will be fed. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And then he addresses himself to them. The charge has three words that are used of them. You notice in verse 4, A sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. Notice the the three things that are said of them. They have forsaken the Lord. That is, deliberately decided to have nothing more to do with him. They have spurned or despised the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned their backs on him. They've been estranged from him. Now you will know how that happens with children 
they have forsaken, they have despised, they have been estranged from their home and family and parents. And Isaiah sees Israel under God's judgment because they have not known him. They have not understood. They have not even begun to understand what is the meaning of their life, what their privileges have been. They do not even understand why they are in the plight as a nation that they are in today. Does that strike you as being at all modern? You listen to some of these political statements and all kinds of political conferences in this season of the year, and they are amazed. They cannot understand certain things that are happening in the nation. What are we going to do about it, they say. We cannot understand this. They are declaring that to us again and again. And they think that by making some political decision or spending some money, they will alter the character of the nation when in in fact, what is wrong is iniquity in the nation, a people who have forsaken the Lord and abandoned righteousness, and they do not grasp what the real significance of it is, nor do they see the judgment hand of a holy God upon national as well as personal situations. And Isaiah points it out. Now look at charge two, because you would really think that people who didn't respect God wouldn't worship him. Would you not? You would not imagine that people who had forsaken God, been alienated from him, and turned their backs upon him, would ever be in the slightest bit interested in worshiping him. But not at all, says Isaiah. The people of Judah still come to worship. They still go through the formalities. They still observe all the outward forms. But listen to what God says. He says in verse 11, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Another translation, what do I get from this? What does it mean to me? I've had more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Do you notice that phrase? I have no pleasure, says God. Here he is speaking about this particular kind of corruption and insincerity. Now, what's insincerity? Insincerity is a divorce between the outward action and the inward condition of the heart. And God says, this is what's wrong with your worship. I have no pleasure in it. Now... I would guess that the people of Judah probably got quite a lot of pleasure out of it. But God didn't at all. And it is quite possible, you see, for people to get a lot of fleshly pleasure out of what they call worship. And God says, I'm getting nothing out of this, actually. Actually. 
Did you know, he says? Do you care? And I think of the living God ascending in his glory to his throne and standing in the midst of his people in the 20th century and saying to us, I am getting nothing out of this. Did you know? Do you care? I've had enough of this hiatus between your outward action and your inward heart. Rebellious hearts that are living in defiance of me are what really interests me and not the outward worship. Now that's a very, very striking thing. It's very important to grasp that... um, Booming religion doesn't necessarily mean that people are near to God or that he is finding pleasure. Notice the third area where God is concerned with justice in the city. God says to them, before we pass on to that, you will notice... um, J.B. Phillips, in his translation of the prophets, has this translation of verse 18. Come, he says, let us settle the matter. Now, the way God is going to settle the matter, as I was hinting a moment ago, is through repentance. If you are willing, verse 19, and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Notice uh, how he spells out what repentance means. The end of verse 16, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And then God says, we will settle the matter in this way. Though your sins are like scarlet, scarlet was the deepest, most uh, difficult dye to come out. You know, it's a bit like getting beetroot in your white shirt. And this kind of scarlet, though your sins are like scarlet, he says, they shall be as white as snow. There is what God's... That's why, you see, you can't just say this is all judgment. It's mercy, grace, salvation woven through it. And you know that there is nothing whiter than snow. You put your hand out and take in, as we used to do in the old days, a bottle of milk on a snowy morning. And you know what color the milk looks like because it's against the snow. And there is nothing whiter than this. And the deepest dyed sin of Judah can be made white as snow, says the Lord. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured. Now, charge three, when people get away from God, justice begins to go. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. Now, I don't need to apply this, do I? We have lived through recent years when the city 
You know, the news of the city. Now the city has become a place where people have just been waiting and asking, where is the next bombshell going to blow up in our faces with injustice, corruption, unrighteousness, dishonesty, above all, selfish aggrandizement. People ready to stand on the faces of a thousand others in order to further unjustly their own interests. Did somebody say that the Old Testament was not a contemporary topical book? It's as contemporary as tomorrow morning's newspaper. And here is what the living God says. The Lord, the Almighty, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself and my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. And many people think that's maybe God's prophecy of what he was going to do in the exile into Babylon. And God cleansed the city, do you notice? At the very end of the chapter, by fire, both will burn together. And when he brought them back, he brought them back a new people. The glorious thing is, and now we're done. Five minutes late, but that's not bad. The glorious thing is the way God set about this work of grace is more fully described to us in places like chapter 53. But did you notice the little shaft of light in chapter 1, verse 4, of these three phrases that are used about the way the children have dealt with the Lord. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Now you may know that these are the very expressions that are used of the Messiah in chapter 53. They forsook him. He was despised and forsaken. They turned their faces from him. And he bore the transgression of his people. Blessed be God that this book is a message of such full and glorious salvation. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.